Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Mark Zweig as my guest on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Mark is joining me via Zoom from Fayetteville, Arkansas. Welcome, Mark. How's it going, Christian? Good to be here. Many listeners of the podcast may know who Mark is. I've referenced him many times and several guests have as well. Uh, He's a legend in the architect and engineering industry. Mark's an entrepreneur, a professor, a speaker, a real estate developer, a builder, an author, as well as a motorcycle, car, and hat enthusiast. Uh, (laughs) Mark is the founder of Zwei Group, twice named on the Inc. 500 list, and once listed as one of their fastest-growing privately held companies. The Zwei Group is a leading management and business experts in the architecture and engineering industry, helping all kinds of firms in strategic planning, mergers and acquisitions, startups, leaderships, HR, organizational structure, ownership transition, financial management, and recruiting and marketing. Mark is also the founder and owner of Mark's Zweig, Inc., a design-build company, where he and his team are the real estate developers, investors, property managers of commercial, multifamily, and single-family properties. As I said before, he is the entrepreneur in residence, teaching new venture development and small business management at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. He is the author of 12 books, the most recent being Confessions of an Entrepreneur, released late last year. Mark, it's an honor to have you here and have this conversation. Hey, it's great to be here with you. I love what you're doing, Christian. Thank you. Uh, So uh, I wanted to tell a quick story about how we got involved with your company, uh, the Zwei Group. And a few months, uh, about 10 years ago, after I joined uh, my architecture firm, Mancini Duffy, the partners at the time hired Zwei Group, you all, for a valuation and I guess what I would call like a state of affairs of what was going on at Mancini. Why was it all messed up? Um, so they hired you all and you came in. And I remember I was totally against this. I was like, this is ridiculous. We're not going to have a consultant come in here. If these guys would just talk to me, I could tell them exactly what the problem was and we could fix it in five minutes and move on. And I met one of your guys, this guy, Ted Majeka. And I remember we started off the conversation with, sort of this battle, who are you? Why are you here? Who are you? Why are you here? Um, It was very contentious in the beginning, Um, but it very quickly turned to a, a, you know, a lifelong friendship with Ted and myself and and our firm and the Mm -hmm. the amount that we we value um, Zwei Group and how much you all helped us. And I, I guess... So my question is, you know, and, and ultimately that led to the ownership transition that we, we did where I purchased the firm. Um, and, and really it was Ted and, and, and your team that made all that happen. Um, so in all your decades of doing this, do you find that architects have a sense or even a clue 
as to how to plan their retirement and their trans transitions from their firms uh, to the next generation of leadership? Wow, that's a big question, man. Um, <laughs> yes, obviously some of them do. Um, not not the majority, though. I, I think it's um, it's pretty common that um, you know. And and again, I hate to generalize, but it's always better entertainment when one does. <laughs> um, I'd say architects, um, by and large, probably live beyond their means. Um, they spend more than they make consistently, which um, they that combined with bad advice they get from their accountants that their company's never going to be worth anything beyond what they can suck out of it every year. Um, you know, you end up with a with a bad situation late in the game um, where, uh, you know, nobody else has been brought into ownership. There's uh, too much management is being done by one person at the top. Um, that person needs to keep making money because they've spent too much all along. Um and and so I'd say that's a fairly typical scenario. But, you know, there are obviously really great architects who are good business people and plan for transition and and, uh, you know, develop their successors while they're still there and then get out of their way soon enough for those successors to take over and put their own stamp on the business. It's just that they're the minority. OK. Yeah, I, I guess I agree with that, too. Yeah, we have. uh you know, in sort of our our journey along the way, we found some that are very organized, right? And in terms mm -hmm. of firms that we want to buy and others that, yeah, I mean, same thing. I don't, I don't know about the spending out of your means, but I can certainly see that uh, as, a, as, a, <laughs> as an architect. Uh, you, you're welcome to speak to my wife if you'd like. That'd be great. <laughs> that may be something that I share a characteristic with many architects as well. So I, it may be the pot calling the kettle black, but yeah. So if you had to pick one thing, what annoys you about architects? The most annoying thing right now is the complaining about the hours and the pay that I hear from young architects. Hmm. That's probably my greatest um, gripe. And why is that? I, because I feel like if, you know, if that's the situation, if you're so abused and oppressed, then you should either start your own business where you're not going to be abused and oppressed or go find somewhere else where you're not going to be abused and oppressed. But just sitting there complaining about it doesn't do anybody any good. You know, that's sort of how I feel. Yeah, I, I totally, <laughs> I, I totally <laughs> agree. I love that. Um, so a, a two part question. Um, I, I love architects, though. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no, I, no, I generally I, I love architects because they're creative. They're intelligent. They're funny. They're open to different ideas. I, I find architects are some of the most fun people to hang out with <laughs> that I know. I agree. Actually, most of my friends, if not all of them, are <laughs> architects. So. <laughs> And and yeah, everybody will will give me uh, give me crap about the name of this podcast. What do you you don't like architects? And I say no, and, it's the opposite. I love architects. What are you talking about? <laughs> that was my reaction to it, but it's obviously worked out well for you. So <laughs> keep doing what you're doing, man. So two part question. Uh, I guess what makes a good entrepreneur, and do architects architects make good entrepreneurs? 
I think what makes a good entrepreneur, it's just somebody who sees a problem and wants to solve it or sees a need out there in the marketplace and feels that they can fill it. Um, it's really what it comes down to. Um, you know, there's no real magic to it. Anybody can do it. Architects are just like anybody else. Sure, they can do it. I think some people feel that it's risky, you know, to be an entrepreneur, riskier than having a job. I don't feel like that. I feel like it's less risky. You know, when you um, have a job, you work for a place, it's like you have one client and that's it. And, you know, if you had a business, if you had an architectural firm, we've seen cases like that where companies had, for example, Walmart as their sole client and Walmart pulls the plug on them and they they're gone in a year. You know, yeah. BSW um, was an example of that in uh, as a firm based in Oklahoma. But um, so I don't know. Um I, I don't think it's I don't think it's as risky, I think, uh, as people think. Um, but I do think you've got to have this desire to either do something better than what's being done now or do something that isn't being done now. Yeah, that that really seems to drive people. I like that as entrepreneurs. Yeah, I like that. And I think you're you're right about architects. I mean, um, to me, having a job as an architect is risky. Right. Because mm-hmm. your project could go away tomorrow. The client can change. I mean, even as an example, but some of our clients, right, we'll have a client where the entire real estate department will change over. We've been working with one client right. for 10 years and then the entire real estate department changes over and we now have to prove ourselves again. Right. And we have a whole new set of characters and a whole new group of people that, you know, they have their own relationships and their own people. And if we're not careful, we're out. You know, and now the new guy's in. (laughs) Well, you're lucky you have a chance to prove yourself because sometimes they just come in and it's just done, period. Exactly. You know, change. (laughs) The good news is a lot of times those people go to another company and then we, you know, we'll we'll end up working with them again down the road. So that does happen, too. Yeah, they they can spread the word about how great you are and you end up with a new client. Mm -hmm. So. Talk to me about the, I'm just curious, talk to me about the risks of being an entrepreneur. What do you talk to your students about? Well, obviously there's a financial risk, but, you know, especially if you start looking at my students, most of them don't have anything. So it's a great time to start a business when you're poor and all your friends are poor, you know, <laughs> um, but I, I think, you know, the greatest risk, if you really think about it, is um, what it does to the rest of your life. I think that's something a lot of people don't really consider is the amount of, of mental energy and time it takes to really be successful, to really be good at it. Um, You're going to be on all the time. You're going to be thinking about it all the time. And that takes its toll on your personal relationship. So you best have a partner, uh, you know, your life partner better be somebody who understands, understands that, um, you know, if they don't, you're going to have big problems. Um, that's kind of, I think that's probably the greatest risk. It's the risk to your relationships with people that you really care about. That's interesting. You know, and I, 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 I would agree that being the business owner, being the entrepreneur, you are obsessed with your your thing. 
um, mm-hmm. 24-7. There isn't a moment I don't think about work. And and it's not it's not as though it's work. That's probably not the right, right terminology for it. It it is sort of an extension of myself and my partners and what of we course. do with our life. And you know, every single employee mm-hmm. is important. And you know, they may not know that. I have no idea. Um, but but constantly thinking about them, you know, and, and to the point where I stop turning on the news because I don't want to hear bad news anymore. I just want to go with uh. what I need to do. <laughs> Listen, Christian, I live in a house that's got nine TVs on it, and every single one of them is turned to the same news channel because my wife is a news junkie. <laughs> so I get that. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's it's really um, I think it's it's all consuming. And, um, you know, my experience, my first wife and I'm on number three, I always tell her third time's the charm, but she tells me, <laughs> don't forget, you're only my second. Uh, my first wife and I, we were together from the time we were 18 years old. So we grew up, we were involved in a million activities. She always knew, you know, I was going to do my own thing. I had a motorcycle shop in college and a million other things, you know? So she was totally used to that. And, um, I, you know, her family background was extremely questionable. Our dad was a Teamsters business agent and owned the garbage hauling, trash hauling business with the local chief of police on the south side of Chicago that they lived in. So you can imagine what her family background was all about. But um, but in any case, um, you know, she got that. My second wife grew up in a family where both of her parents were teachers one was a professor at a junior college. The other one was a, you know, uh, K through 12 um, art teacher. And she did not understand this at all. You know, uh-huh. I mean, they their background was so different. I mean, they went bankrupt, even though they knew exactly what they'd make every year, just because they couldn't stop spending money. And, um, you know, it, it, it's so she didn't understand, like, why, why am I not off all summer? You know, why, um, you know, we're rich. That was it's like you're either rich or you're poor. No, there's a lot of middle ground there. You know, <laughs> it's like it's so that was a lot of that created a lot of problems in our relationship. You know, she couldn't understand why I'd have to take calls at night or, you know, there'd be a crisis or, and as you said, you know, um, thinking about your people, I mean, that's what really keep, it kept me awake as a business owner more than anything else is people not getting along. Somebody's not doing their job. Somebody's unhappy, you know, terribly unhappy, those were the things more than like, where's our next money going to come from meeting the payroll, you know, yeah, those things are secondary to all those relationship deals. But in any case, my, my third wife, um, who, you know, she's, she's great. She grew up in a family that owned multiple businesses. Um, she and I worked together. She was my CFO at Swag group. She was a friend before I ever heard her there. And, um, you know, she's she had her own business, um, several of them. And so it, it, there's no issue at all. You're supported. You're you're free to do what you have to do to make your business successful. Yeah. And, and that's invaluable. I agree. And 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 along those lines, my wife is an interior designer by trade. 
yeah, or, or by education, uh, switched over mm-hmm. to the furniture side and was part, we worked together, that's how we met, and is part of this industry. So she understands, so she knows exactly. what it means, why, you know, that I could go to an industry event every night and I, I you know, I'd... I go to dinners and lunches and breakfasts sure. and kind of wherever the clients are, that's where I go. And she gets that, you know, and I don't yes. think I could survive if, you know, I had someone at home questioning why, why am I doing this? Why are you doing that? It it, it would seem yep. made up, I guess, if you, if you didn't know part of how this industry works. Um, no so question about it. If we go back to kind of leadership and the way you talk mm-hmm. about leadership in your books and in your newsletter, um, the Zweig newsletter, um, what makes a good leader in the world of architects? Um, you know, who are some of the good leaders that you know? And and I don't know if you want to name bad leaders, but uh, who are some of the bad leaders, or what are some of the characteristics of the bad leaders? Well, some of the best leaders I know have unfortunately died. Um, who are good friends of mine, like Joe Lolly, who used to run EDSA down in Fort Lauderdale. It's a landscape architecture firm. Edward Durrell Stone Jr. and Associates. Um, Joe, to me, was like the archetypal leader. You know, he he was the best seller they had, and he sold. He defied all conventional wisdom about what it takes to sell work. I mean, he had certain, you know, weird verbal idiosyncrasies. Like he said, you know, when he talked out of the side of his mouth all the time, and he would kind of trail off like that. And, he spoke so softly that you know you'd have to listen to him when he talked. But he was brilliant. You know, clients would call. He knew how to play hard to get. He'd go there. He'd immediately make I give him ideas on everything, not all related to landscape architecture. You know, related to their 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 business, what they were doing entirely. He would just shake people up in such a way and give them so many good ideas that he was he was like a god. I mean. He traveled all the time. He was probably 80% job chargeable and he sold a ton of work at the highest prices. I mean, cause he really understood what value was all about. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a great leader and he, and he had the, a big studio and everybody who worked for him liked him. You know, how, mm-hmm. how can you argue with that? Um, so, you know, I think he was really good. He was a good teacher. He was he was a nice person. He genuinely cared about other people. He was extremely talented as a designer, which to me is also fundamental. I mean, I, you know, I remember some years ago, Skidmore hired some guy out of corporate America to be their CEO. And I thought that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. You know, it's like, well, we the partners can't get along. So we'll hire this guy from outside who worked for Westinghouse and, you know, uh, what was the, the guy at Westinghouse who was so famous? Um, anyway, you know, he, he didn't last a year, as far as I recall. Um, you got to be good at what you do, I think, if that's what your company does, you know? Yeah, you got to be able to know it and speak it and talk the game. <laughs> I, I agree. And be passionate about it. Mm-hmm. You know, Peter Penoyer in, in New York, he's another one. He's a great guy. He's... Yeah, I don't know if you know Peter. No. Um, they do. He he, you know, interned at at Bob Stearns and and uh, and you know he's just a brilliant guy. They do 
classical residential architecture. That's, you know, traditional classical residential architecture. They're really good at it. I mean, he's got probably the greatest library of, you know, architectural books ever created. And uh, he's a nice person. He's well known in in the circles that he travels. Um, he can give credit to other people. He's a fantastic writer. You know, um, he's a he's another one. I think is a great guy. Um, is a is a great role model for architects. And then you know there are the others. Um, <laughs> you know, who, who I mean, I, I'll never forget. You know, I was I was at a firm in in Boston that was uh, pretty well known for what they did. It was a husband and wife, and the husband at one time was the dean of a very prominent architectural school, and and he and his wife, you know, would fight in front of their employees, and you know, she, her ego was so fragile, and and. And crazy. The first time I met her, she sat me down in a conference room, opened up a Vanity Press book on their work and read to me about herself. OK. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was a. It, she treated the employees like they were servants. Yeah. You know, it's like we're come to our house on the Cape. And by the way, we're going to repaint the whole thing this weekend. You know, I mean, <laughs> it was like for, she thought she was Frank Lloyd Wright or something. <laughs> you know, those kinds of people um, are terrible. I, I don't know what else to say. That's I mean, great. they're not good leaders. Their egos drive everything. They can't give any credit to anybody else. Um, and usually their firms only grow to a certain point, mm. I, I think. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you really talk about dysfunction in our field, it, it's Ayn Rand and Howard Rourke did more damage, <laughs> you know, than any. I mean, it, it's just that role model of Howard Rourke is totally dysfunctional. Yeah. And I think if that's. You know, if that's what somebody thinks they're going to be, then they're going to have a problem building a business like you have there. I mean, it's never going to happen. Right. <laughs> you you won't be able to get good people and grow to that size. It's yeah. just not it's not going to be possible. Yep. I love it. So so let's let's talk a little bit about Zwei Group itself. Um, sure. And the formation of it um, from which you're you're mostly retired from. Correct. Mm -hmm. um, I am. <laughs> so you know all types of um um of all types of consulting businesses um yep. what made you gravitate toward the architect and engineering industry the AEC industry why pick that yeah i'm still not sold on the c being yeah, part of yeah, our industry by the way <laughs> everybody uses that moniker but damn it contracting is a completely different world and people say well that means consulting nah it means contracting yeah to most people unless you're and doing it's design build it is a totally different thing totally different animal i and believe me coming out of the design field my entire career going into contracting wow what an eye-opener holy cow <laughs> you should talk to my wife about that one uh but uh because she ran that business. But but um, so, no, I was always interested in in architecture and building. When I was a little kid, I used to draw floor plans and 
of houses and I'd make them, you know, to scale with one peg equals one square at Legos. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of architects were like that. I thought I wanted to go to architectural school. And then I started working in bike shops at 12 or 13. And I just got to where I made so much money. I was seduced away by the world of business. Okay. It's basically what I'd say, you know? <laughs> and, and so when I was a kid, I mean, I worked in these bike shops and Christian, I was making like six or 700 a week. When I got my undergrad in business in 1979, my first job offer was 8,800 a year. I, you know, so it, it just, you know, it, it, I got seduced away by it. But then when I got out of grad school with my MBA, I was really lucky. I went to work for a firm that was a management consulting firm that served um, the construction and development industry. And they had occasional opportunities to work with architects and engineers, and nobody there wanted to work with them. They said uh, conventional wisdom was, uh, they can't make a decision and they won't pay good fees, you know, <laughs> but I gravitated to that group and I developed some clients really early on. I worked with 3D International. They were a client of mine down in Houston. They were a big high rise design firm and Harlan Bartholomew. They were kind of the 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 leaders, you know, the the first to do, um, you know, real subdivision planning and. And uh, I, I just found the people interesting and creative. And so that's where my two interests sort of collided. And um, after three years there, I went to work for one of my clients, which was an engineering firm in, in Memphis. And right when I got there, we bought an architecture firm and that didn't work out. We divested ourselves of that. And um and then uh, I got uh, to bring architecture in-house by recruiting some key people, but calling them things like, uh, this guys uh, he's just a roofing expert. We're not really competing with you architectural clients. <laughs> and this guy over here, he's in charge of our Intergraph CAD system. We're not really doing design work, architect clients. And so, and then I went to work for another one of my former clients, which was a firm base in Fort Worth called uh, Carter and Burgess. And, uh, and, you know, it just kind of went from there. I mean, I spent my entire career working with architects and engineers and was so an owner in those firms and, and, uh, and got to be, you know, an owner and several others after I, I got out of there just, you know, as an outside director and, and sometimes got to buy into them. Huh. And so when did you form Swy Group? 1988, July 13. And how and how ultimately how how large is it now? Uh, today's wide group, I don't honestly, I don't know how many employees they have. I guess they have probably around 40. OK. At our peak, though, the company was had 120 or 130 people. Oh, wow. You know, we sold it in um, 2004. And to a private equity firm, and it was taken back by its lender in 2009. They called me back in 2010. They had about 19 people and was a shell of what it originally was. And so it was a major turnaround. Um, Swag Group's very successful today. I mean, their their revenue per head is very high. And, uh, 
it's a you know it's a well-managed outfit you know you don't need as many people to generate the revenue that they generate today yeah it thanks in part to the m a business which is is obviously it's very lucrative and what um, what was your what was your mission or or vision when creating mm-hmm. Zweig? What 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 did you set out to do? I had a business plan I wrote in November of '86 and uh, put it in effect in in uh, July of '88. But it was very simple. We wanted to make our AE firm clients more successful, hmm. and so whatever it we could do that supported that, um, we would do it. And, you know, it started initially doing recruiting and marketing, consulting and business planning, and then just expanded from there into all the different things that we do. Research, M&A, appraisal, you know, uh, everything, really. And, and anything what, that's supported the business. It, can you clarify the difference? Because I, I think most architects get confused by this. They They make it sort of these wordy, like bullshit statements. Can you clarify the difference between vision and mission? <laughs> yeah, to me, mission is why you're in business. And it's got to have some benefit to a, a client or a customer. And the vision is what are you trying to become? Mm. So, you know, we we had a real simple vision at that time. And, you know, we wanted to build this business up to where it was worth, you know, so much money, get it into the eight-figure territory and sell it. That was our goal. Ten years, you know, was really what we thought we'd do. And it took longer than that. It took 16. We had it sold in right um, before 9-11, and the buyer pulled out. And so that was really a tough three years after that that we had to slog through until we did sell the company to this private equity firm that we sold it to for less than we would have gotten in 01 with the original deal. The original deal, by the way, was selling the company to the National Fire Protection Association. Really? Yeah. They wanted what we did. They wanted to, you know, be the leaders in building code and sort of use our position in the industry as uh, as the way to access the owners and managers of firms. Interesting. To sell that. Huh. But um after 9-11, they fired the guy who was in charge of development, and it all evaporated. It was gone. <laughs> so in, earlier, you mentioned the word sales, right? And you, you, you know, yeah. and I feel like in the world of architecture, sales has gets like a it's a bad word, right? Sure. You, you never want to you never want to think about about sales. Can you talk a little bit about your philosophy around sales, whether that's within Zweig itself or how architects sell their Mm -hmm. services, because quite frankly, every day, whether an architect knows it or not, they're selling their service, whether they're selling their design, whether they're selling a particular piece of material to go on their design or a wall covering or even a paint color or bigger picture, they're selling their, you know, the service to win business, right? But we don't call it sales. It's like a bad word for some reason. <laughs> I was told that by my first boss um, in uh, the firm I went to work for in 83. It's like, you're, we sell, but don't ever say that. That's a dirty word here. Um, you're in project development. That's what you do. <laughs> I mean, selling, it, it, it's a it's a complex subject, really, but I mean, it's all about 
the relationships that you have with people and those relationships can't just be transactional. I mean, mm -hmm. people have to know you really care about them. And for me, it was simple. I was good talking on the phone and I just called people and talked to them, whether they had anything for me or not. And then if they needed a favor, if I could do it, I would do that. And so then, you know, not only are you friends, you're helpful. I mean, selling to me is all about helping people really um, get what they want. And uh, and so it's it's a natural thing. I don't feel like you have to misrepresent yourself. I never wanted to misrepresent anything. I was selling bikes on my mom and dad's street corner from the time I was a little kid, then motorcycles, then cars. You know, my dad used to love it. My dad was a real madman of advertising. He was absolutely, you know, um, the the. Uh, uh, What's the main character in uh, Mad Men? Um, Don Draper. My dad was Don Draper. He was the number two guy in an ad agency. He was the creative guy. Really? Which ad yeah. agency? It was called um, Roman Advertising. It was based in St. Louis. And, uh, you know, they were very successful. And it uh, started in the in the early, uh, late 40s, early 50s. And uh, But anyway, he loved it. Because he said, I like how you sell, because I would just tell people everything wrong with it. You know, whatever it was. I mean, now this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, but this is my price. And, you know, then they try to negotiate with me. And I'd say, look, that's that's what it is. I've told you exactly what you're getting. If you want it, fine. If you don't want it, fine. Love that. He just thought that was the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> and so, you know. It's always been a part of what I do, but I, I think it's a natural thing if you want to help people. You know what it made me made me realize, and I think I'm, I didn't, I, I got a sense of pride actually while you were talking about it. Is <laughs> I make a lot of our clients or, or my clients um, friends, right? They are people mm -hmm. that I genuinely become friendly with. We go out to dinner, not right. We, you know, with our wives and with our families, and we'll even go. I've gone on vacation with with you know people that are our clients, right? That I've met throughout sure. this industry, and I will say there there's. You know, and I'm all about doing favors, helping, right? If I can help yep. our client or help a real estate broker that I'm friendly with or whoever that might be, you know, and they get a job because I've helped them, then I, whether I get a shot at that job or whether it, you know, benefits me and it doesn't actually matter to me. But what, yeah. what made me think of a sense of pride was one of our project managers will say to me all the time, Hey, is this a favor for someone for for this person, or am I charging them for it? Like he he's he's so he's so aware of that innately now mm -hmm. because of years and years of working with me that he asks that all the time, and many times I'll say no 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 this one's a charge you know he told us you know sure. we're charging the client or whatever no right. we don't do everything for free, um, but I but I think that's great because you're absolutely correct it's selling is helping um, yeah I, I love that. I absolutely love that. I always tell my students, they come to me and they're like, well, what other classes should I take? You know, and I'm like, take the selling class, you know, any, whatever it is, it's going to be helpful to you. That's all I know. Whatever you decide to do, it's going to be helpful. And I was really lucky too. You know, when I went to work for that first firm out of grad school, that was the consulting firm I mentioned to you. 
the guy who started that was the former national sales manager for Xerox Corporation in the 1960s. And he developed their sales management training program. This guy was a master. I mean, you know, the whole funnel idea of talk to so many people and then make so many proposals, you know, get so many meetings and make so many proposals and then sell so many jobs was pounded into us. <laughs> and they would never talk about your technique if your activity level wasn't where it needed to be. They focused on the activity. That was always the thing. Now, if you had high activity level and you still weren't succeeding, well, then they'd figure out what you're doing wrong. Sure. But, you know, that that was an eye opener for me. It was so helpful to me. It served me well the rest of my life. That and being a, a TA teaching statistics and understanding probability theory, you know, it's those two things. I mean, wow, so helpful. So speaking of that, and, you know, obviously, being you know semi-retired or retired from Zweig, I, I know you still keep in contact with them and with the industry. Yeah. Where is the 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 AEC, for lack of a better term? Where is that industry heading right now? Do you do you have a sense of kind of where it is? Is there, you know, is there an economic shoe that's about to drop? Um, you know, some sort of event that you foresee in in coming. Well, I, if you want to talk about the economy, I think, we're yeah, the shoe that's going to drop is going to be loan renewals on investment properties. That's right. the big, big cloud. I mean, we sold everything we had. We started selling down before COVID hit. And then when COVID hit, I was like, holy cow, you know, what are we going to do with these expensive two-bedroom condos that we sell to people who come to Razorback football games when there's no Razorback football games? You know, I was just like, oh. So, you know, we sold everything down, but we still have one 21,000-square-foot mixed-use project. It's the only investment property we've got at this point. And it scares me. I was lucky we got a, a loan um we, we got it financed at three and a half percent. We got three and a half years left on that. But I worry about that. If that thing went to current interest rates based on where will what we'll owe on it in three and a half years, the payments are going to go up by nine thousand a month. Oh, wow. Not everybody's going to be able to support that. And if they have as many properties as we used to have, they're going to be in serious trouble. Yeah, that's nine thousand dollars a month. Yeah, that's what really worries me. Um, the the biggest cloud. Now, as far as our industry goes, I'm not worried that we're going to be all replaced by AI. <laughs> I think that's a bunch of shit. Honestly, I really do. I, I it, it's, it certainly isn't going to happen in your lifetime or mine and your lifetime is going to be longer than mine at this point. I mean, it's, I, I don't see that as a threat. I think we are still, chronically understaffed if you look at the whole industry we have still have a big people shortage demand generally exceeds supply you know there's always these little pockets of geography or project type or market sector that can be soft or, or can be hot but overall the needs are out there there's tons and tons of needs we need everything that design professionals do really yeah i mean everything 
Yeah. So I, I don't see that the demand side is 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 going to be a problem. I, I think it's 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 out there. I, I you know I think the economy's got some scary. You know the other the other threat obviously is is this this um, you know uh, signing off on ex- extending the national debt. All right. I mean, if that doesn't happen, if we go into default, you're going to see interest rates go up like eight or nine percent overnight. Yep. It's going to kill everything. It, it you know, we're all going to be in serious trouble. That, <laughs> yes. That's what I think. <laughs> I think it's crazy to do it. But anyway, those those are sort of the two biggest threats, I think. And I, I right agree now. on AI. I, I don't see that. I, I think if anything, it actually helps what we do. Uh, we use it in our office. Uh, it generates some pretty cool, interesting ideas. Yeah. Um, I've, I've talked about it on this podcast with some others. It's almost like having another Pinterest board. You know, it gives mm-hmm. you a bunch of random ideas and interesting stuff to look at and, and talk about. But at the end of the day, what we do has to be built. Um, yeah. And it has to be built by hand. And yes, machines do certain parts of it, but the finish work is still by hand until you find me a robot that can lay tile perfectly as demanding as some of our clients will go and and look at things and, and see the, you know, a 16th of an inch off or whatever that might be. Um, you can maybe 3D print some things, but you're not going to 3D print an entire interior with all those. I mean, maybe one day, but we have yeah. we have decades and decades before a lot of that that happens. One last question yes. about Zwei Group, which I was curious mm-hmm. about, and just in sort of, you know, because I've, I've read your letters over the years. Um, yeah. Talk about building culture, you know, in Zwei mm-hmm. Group and how you built it and and why it's so important. Well, I mean, I think it's the leader's job to start with. But if for us, it was the result of a whole lot of things. It really started with something we called the pie. And that was when I brought Fred White on. I made this deal with him. I just started the business. And I won't get into all the details, but it was basically Fred and me and a low-paid guy sitting there in an office in Natick, Massachusetts, above Russ's lunch. And we came up with this idea of the pie when I brought him on. And that is after all the expenses, I get this percent of the profit and you get that percent of the profit. And so then anybody we hired, if they were at a certain level, we'd cut them in on the pie. We then incorporated the business in 91 or 92. I can't remember. And, you know, the company, it was a proprietorship up till then the company bought me out at my book value over time. And we redistributed the ownership with Fred and myself. And then we did sell ownership to people and financed hundred percent of that. And so that was a big part of the culture, the business planning process that happened every year with a tune up halfway through the year, sharing the numbers with everybody being open book hmm sharing the profits with everybody on a monthly basis, um, sharing the profits with owners on a regular basis based in accordance with share of ownership as we were in S-Corp. You know, a business planning process that said, you got to innovate every year. You need to come up with three new things to sell and three new ways to sell it. So it was kind of baked in. Mm -hmm. Lots of celebration, lots of communication, you know, in, in 
And then I think, you know, trying in our case, I just didn't want people working for us who were out there giving the stock answers. Every time you have a problem, read this book. Uh, you need to be reading Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. You know, you're not a level five leader, Christian. You're a level four, you know, or some other bullshit. If I used to say, if I want to hear what those people say, I'll friggin' get those authors in here. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it's just, we had to make, a, it, you're never going to be a famous songwriter unless you, or a famous musician unless you write your own music. We need to write our own music. We need to be honest with people. We need to take all the BS out of it. Don't give panacea solutions to all your problems. It's not going to be EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating <laughs> System. It's not going to be MBO. It's not going to be M management by wonder, MBWA, you know, Tom Peters. It's not going to be anything like that. All right. It's a whole lot of things that we got to do all the time Yep, to make the thing successful. And uh, so, yeah, we built a really good culture and it really worked because I think people had trust for management. They didn't think anything was being hidden from them. And they also could see that they could be successful and benefit from the success of the organization. We didn't pit anybody against each other. When we sold to the private equity firm, the, the first thing they did is like, stop being open book, kill the overall company bonus plan and pit 19 different people against each other. Right. You know, so now the, the seminar group that relied on management consultants to provide the, the, the uh, talent for their seminars. Now um, the management consulting group didn't want to do it because they didn't get paid, you know, or whatever. It's all bullshit. <laughs> they completely screwed the thing up. That's why when we got it back, it was in such bad shape and they lost a lot of good talent along the way, uh, you know, but I'm thankful today. I think the company's really stronger than ever. It's got a, it's got a really good group of people. It's young, yeah. You know, a lot of young people, and um, and they've got their own thing they're doing. So I'm proud uh, of them. Yeah, no, great, great advice all in there. So, where just a little bit about your backstory? Where did you grow up? And when you were a kid, what did you want to be? Now, I grew up in Kirkwood, Missouri, which is a St. Louis bedroom community. It's a very nice town. It was kind of like any town USA when I grew up there. Now it's all rich people. But um, so it's, you know, it's like a lot of cities that had a good sort of downtown area. Everybody discovered it and all the yuppies moved in and started tearing the little houses down, building these giant drywall palaces on lots in the city and all. But it's a, it was a great place to live. I was completely uncontrolled. I was the fourth kid. My parents were worn out by the time I came along. I was an accident. My dad always told me. But he said it was a good accident. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I like I said, I wanted to be an architect. Then as I went through school and, and, and grad school, I thought I wanted to work in the automotive industry. And so I, I should if I had time, I'd show you this picture of, of me with Roger Smith in 1979. But anyway, so I was the grad student advisor to a team that had to come up with the do research 
and design an advertising campaign for the full-size Chevy Caprice Impala line of 1980. And we won. It was a General Motors intercollegiate marketing competition. We won for the research. I was the grad student advisor on the research side. So we all go up to General Motors and we're on the 14th floor with Roger Smith and Pete Estes and all these guys are at the top of GM, spent several days there. It was mind boggling the way these guys lived. We we had, you know, lunch in the executive dining room where there's one person for every meal pulling the <laughs> silver lid off of it, you know, in unison. It was crazy. But um Anyway, talking with these guys, uh, I said, you know, they were like, what do you want to do? And I said, I think I want to go to work in the auto industry and all. And and they were like, oh, no, you don't want to do that. That This is a dying industry. This is not a place for somebody like you. This, this industry is going downhill. And that had a huge effect on me. Here these guys are at the largest industrial corporation in the world. And they're saying, don't go to work in our <laughs> industry. It, it blew me away. But only recently did it dawn on me why they might have given me that advice, Christian. I, in fact, I sent the picture to Bob Lutz, who I don't know if you know who he is, but he's a big car guy. He was on the board of GM, Chrysler, Ford and BMW. Yeah. And I, I said to him, I said, you know, I figured out why these guys talked me out of the car business. That is, take a look at this picture. And there I am. You know, my hair is like terrible. My beard's unkept. I got a, a $29 corduroy sport coat I bought at Venture, and I borrowed a tie from another student. I didn't even go there with a tie, you know? <laughs> I These guys took one look at me and said, this guy's never going to make it in corporate America. <laughs> so. so along those lines, you allegedly have over 400 cars, or you've owned over 400 cars and 300 yeah. motorcycles. Is that yeah. all true? That's true. I've, I've had everything. I'm, I'm an old hot rodder. I like Porsches. I like, I recently got rid of a British racing green last year, silver spur Rolls Royce. That's turbocharged one of 70 made total that year. I built cars. Uh, the last car we built, we made the frame and the body out of steel. It was a giant boat tail speedster, the flying Z. Um, which you can find references to it online with a straight eight Buick. But now I'm restoring old VWs. I've done four in the last 12 months. Air-cooled VWs are my thing. I don't, my budget is decreasing along with my income. <laughs> and uh, I just get a kick out of them. I never liked them when I was young because they weren't fast. You know, yeah, I, mean, like I only hours. wanted stuff, <laughs> stuff that was fast. But now we had a big garage over here in town. We had a lot of cars and motorcycles and just part of the simplification and shedding of all that stuff has been it's been good to go through. But, you know, motorcycles, I had a bad accident in 2016. Well, it wasn't that bad. I messed up my hand. You can see my finger there. Oh, yeah. These last two got crushed. Brand new Triumph Thruxton 1200. First day I got it, a kid pulled out in front of me about 20 feet. And I hit him. Didn't even fall off the bike, totaled it. And my wife had to take me to the hospital and she hates bikes now. <laughs> but um, but I still have a few and I've uh, got one behind me. I got a 66 Benelli here in my uh, in library. You can see oh, yeah, look at that. Right there. <laughs> 
low mileage. Um, but the uh, I've recently joined this company, Janus, that makes handmade motorcycles in Goshen, Indiana. And it was founded by an architect, hmm. uh, Richard Warsham, who's a Notre Dame grad. His dad's a historic preservationist architect in Virginia. And uh, I just am having a great time with these guys. The product is totally unique. Small displacement bikes, 250s and 450s, make them custom order and uh, totally unique design. And I love working with these guys. And so that's my thing right now. Of course, I have one. I've known Richard for several years and we became friends and he asked asked me to get involved with him. And nice. I'll uh, have to check that out. Yeah, it's great. Um, so, yeah, I like stuff that's cool and it's made well and I like fooling around with it. Now, do you know who Steven Van Zant is from the E Street Band? Oh, sure. Yeah, Stevie. So he, yeah, so Stevie wears, he either wears hats or bandanas, right? And, and the, the, the rumor has always been that it's to cover his hair loss. And when he was on The Sopranos, yeah. he wore a wig. What's your obsession with the, with the various hats? <laughs> I'd say you, you probably got it right. My kids <laughs> like to say, my older kids, I think, dubbed my hair a skullet. Uh, which is, you know, I've had it real long before, but yeah, I'm pretty thin up top, man. I don't want to get skin cancer. And uh, it just kind of became my identity as bizarre as that sounds. My, my ex-wife used to say, you're going to get your get up on today, <laughs> which was, you know, included a hat. I just like hats and I don't get sun, um, skin cancer and I don't wear sunglasses. Okay. So the hat provides that yeah, protection. Provides the shade and it makes sense. So last few questions here, because we're, we're uh, pretty far along. Um, so you've authored 12 books. I don't know how you found the time to, to write 12 books, um, but your most recent book, Confessions of an Entrepreneur, um, what, what inspired you to write that? Um, I actually have a copy of it. I meant to bring it in here. Um, what can people learn from there? Actually, I think it's 13 or 14 books now, but... Um, <laughs> My what inspired me to write it? It, 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 just a desire to show people that entrepreneurship is available to everybody. There's no magic in it. There's no it, it's it's not it's not as difficult as people think. And just to sort of give them my thoughts on it. I, I You know, most of the time, I just don't think it's that hard to be successful in business if you just do certain things. But unfortunately, I think a lot of business education doesn't really wrap it all up, sort of like architectural education. It's like, okay, we're going to talk about life safety or we're going to talk, you know, it, it, business education is like that. Here is accounting. Here is HR. Here is information systems. And it's somebody's got to sort of put it all together in kind of an overarching philosophy of how you do things. And if you do those things, you're probably going to be successful. Sure. That's really why I did it. Um, I still have, hopefully, before I keel over, I've got one book left in me. And okay. what I want to write about there, it's going to be fiction. Oh. It'll be a novel um, about somebody who's an architect or engineer and um, who's at the head of their firm. I've got the plot all mapped out. And they're they're packing up their stuff. 
You don't know whether they got fired. You don't know whether they quit in a rage or whether they're just retiring to go on to the next adventure in life. And then it's going to flash back to when they're a little kid and go up through their whole life. And of course, they'll have to plug in plenty of sex and violence <laughs> and other things to keep it interesting. You know, <laughs> it's going to counteract uh, Howard Rourke. <laughs> right. It'll exactly. be the opposite. And then you'll get back to the end and you'll figure out what really happened. And that's sort of that's sort of my goal. But I, I would like, I guess, you know, Zwei Group says they want to elevate the industry. And and so I, I'd like to to um, I'd like to play my part to to glamorize and and, uh, you know, everybody thinks L.A. law, you know, <laughs> I. I get so tired of these comparisons between architects and lawyers, too. There was one on LinkedIn recently. Lawyers make three and a half times what architects make or whatever, you know, starting. It's really not true. I know plenty of lawyers don't make very much money at all. Yeah. You know? Yep. Unless you go to a top school and you graduate in the top of your class, there's plenty of people out there slogging away for 50 grand a year or whatever. Yeah. Doing house closings own... for 2,500 bucks, you know, things like yeah. that. Yeah. I, I know. You know, I'd like to show people how great this business can be or profession or whatever you want to call it. I'm sure architects bristle if I ever call it an industry, <laughs> you know, but so it's I exciting. Asked... I asked Ted Majeka to uh, to give me a question for you. Oh gosh! Okay. <laughs> so he, this is what brother he, Ted. Yeah, this is what he told me. Um, you have been highly successful since your bicycle days, uh, and throughout your career, success has been earned. What defines success for you today? Oh, that's an easy one. Spending my time the way I want to spend it with the people I want to spend it with. I love it. The end. I mean, <laughs> that's the most important thing. I think once you get to a certain level of success, it really did happen for, for me that you just come to realize that having all the stuff can actually be a burden. And it's a lot of that was, in my case, at least, was just driven by ego. You know, I, I, it's like... I. You know, I have 67 houses and condos and 20, you know, 44,000 square feet of commercial space and 20 cars and 10 bikes or whatever. It's all bullshit. OK, <laughs> all that does is just trap you, take up all your time, fill it up with trivial stuff that doesn't really matter. And so today, you know, I have a good time sitting on my front porch out here with my two big great Pyrenees and digging holes in the yard or yesterday, you know, my wife, like I taught two classes yesterday. I came home between classes and spray painted some metal furniture with coral paint to, you know, she's like, I can't believe you did. It's like, you know, you're doing that when you only have this much time. I'm like, yeah, but I wanted to get it done. You know, it's like, I love it. <laughs> I like doing stuff like that. It's, time man it's just time and people yep yep well is there anything as we wrap up is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to tell the listeners <laughs> i think we covered a lot <laughs> we've i don't know what I, i'm not sure i've got any other um really great advice other than um the sooner you can 
start doing what it is that you really love, the better off you're going to be. Uh, you know, focus on your strengths, not your weaknesses. You know, if you want to really build a business, you got to understand you're not going to be good at any, at everything. That's okay. Bring in people who are not like you as your partners. Yep. You know, do things that you don't do well or don't want to do well. And if you think nobody else is going to do things as well as you do, you're also mistaken. <laughs> I mean, you know, you got to give them a chance. It, it, they'll never be as good at you if you never give them that chance. Yep, that's great advice. And on that note, thank you so much for for your time, your insights, the the, um, the comedy as part of it. Um, this has been great. Um, and also, obviously, you know, working with your with with Swy Group's been been great. And we're going to continue working with you as well as as we scale our company um, and continue doing what we're doing. So, um, you know, your story as an entrepreneur, it, it's it's great for other architects to hear that and kind of know that. I think what you said is there's more risk in not being an entrepreneur than there is in in working for for someone else. So so thank you again uh, thank for, you. for being here um, to to see and read more about Mark. Um, he's got there's a lot of different avenues here. There's markswag.com. Um, that's his Fayetteville, Arkansas-based real estate and construction company. There's ygroup.com. There's ygletter. Um, which you'll see there's a lot of great advice on there. Uh, you know, just search for Mark on LinkedIn and Twitter and all of Mark's books, whether it's 13 or 14 books, um, not 12 are, uh, are on Amazon for sure. Um, so Mark, well, thank you again. I really appreciate all the time. Hey, thank you, Christian. And, uh, by the way, Mark's Wike Inc is pretty much defunct at this point, um, since we're down to one asset. Okay. Um, our building, but uh, got a lot of other new stuff in the work. So keep, keep, uh, stay tuned, man. All right. Not done good. yet. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. <laughs>